Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 70, The Czech Republic's Triple Bypass. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Operate on who we operate. Use excessive force when we use excessive force. And today I'll be discussing Season 4, Episode 11, Homer's Triple Bypass. It was first aired on December the 17th, 1992, after another two-week gap. And it's the closest we get to a Christmas episode this year. So Merry Christmas 1992, everybody. And also, Merry Christmas 2022. And I'm going to be talking about the Constitution of the Czech Republic because it was adopted on December the 16th, 1992, the day before Homer's Triple Bypass first aired. That officially completed the velvet divorce between the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can currently still tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget to leave Twitter so we don't have to be there anymore either. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, Twitter, that happened since we last recorded. Yes. Um, for me, the red line was always, was Elon Musk going to bring Donald Trump back? And Donald Trump hasn't officially returned, but I believe his account has been activated. And that was good enough for me, or bad enough for me, depending on how you want to look at it. So I left Twitter. I'm now on Mastodon. If you look for me, I'm Skeptic Canary, if you really want to do that. But yes, so my personal Twitter account is deactivated. I was maintaining the Retrospecticus Twitter account. I'm not anymore, so we may have hundreds of notifications. One of our earlier episodes may have gone viral, but I've no idea if that's the case or not. Even more reason to send us a deal. <laughs> and also, I'm not on there anymore either. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon, but I don't know how it works. So... Um, uh, stay tuned for that. So anyway, this episode first aired on December the 17th, 1992, but Gareth, I hear you cry, what was the UK number one that week? Well, if you've been paying attention, you'll know it was Whitney Houston, and it's going to be Whitney Houston for a while yet. Uh, there's a Turbo Nonce at number two, and then we've got Charles and Eddie at number three, who just won't go away. But at number four, with apologies to Tom, it's a Christmas miracle. All my hobbies and interests... Slam Jam by WWF Superstars. If you'll indulge me, I'll set the scene. You might want to get a cup of tea for this one. The World Wrestling Federation, now known as World Wrestling Entertainment after a ridiculous lawsuit by the World Wildlife Fund, found itself in an odd space at the end of 1992. Interest in the product was waning as they struggled with a looming steroid problem and the difficulty of transitioning out of what is referred to as the Hulkamania era where the Orange Goblin himself, noted racist, liar, and unfortunate sex tape star Terry Hulk Hogan Belia, was trying to segue out of wrestling and into Hollywood. It didn't work, so he came back, but at this stage they really were floundering. In America, that is. In Britain, on the other hand, WWF had never been bigger. After being brought to these shores by Sky Television, with British wrestling having lost its traditional place as a cornerstone of ITV's output several years previously, and coupled with the rise of Britain's own Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, great interest in WWF was bred on these shores. 
and they very successfully and very profitably held their yearly SummerSlam pay-per-view show on August 31st, 1992 at the Old Wembley Stadium in London. This was a first for the company in promoting a major show outside of North America. And would you believe, despite the amount of money they brought in, they would not promote a major show in Britain until 2022, with Clash at the Castle at Cardiff's Millennium Stadium. SummerSlam 92, headlined by Davy Boy's victory against Bret Hitman Hart for the Intercontinental Championship, which is regularly quoted as one of the greatest WWF matches ever, drew in... Well, it's difficult to say, as WWF always inflated its attendance figures, but I've heard between 79,000 and 80,500 quoted, which would make it the second largest attendance for a WWF show ever at that point. The largest was WrestleMania 3 at the Pontiac Silverdome, which is quoted at 93,173. Very oddly precise there. But it's said to have been nearer 78,000, so that's a mere variance of 15,000 people. If we assume it at the lowest point, that would make Wembley the biggest gate for WWE until WrestleMania 32 in 2016. Sorry to bang on a bit there, but what I want to get across is that this is the absolute moment to cash in on WWF in Britain. A perfect storm of schoolyard popularity, slight crossover appeal to other demographics, and bringing in older fans of Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks who are missing their weekly fix of grappling as it's the only way I can explain why Mike Stock and Pete Waterman thought it a great idea to do an album with them. Now, it had been done previously with Piledriver the Wrestling Album, that never made these shores, and it didn't go well enough to provoke a sequel. Until now! Well, then. WrestleMania the Album did nothing in America, but went top ten here, with Slam Jam, a completely throwaway piece of none more early 90s lazy pop backing with several largely disinterested sounding wrestlers saying their catchphrases over the top, including both Davey Boy and Brett, Macho Man Randy Savage, ooh yeah, and slightly incongruously, The Undertaker, reaching number four solely based on the popularity of the product rather than any actual quality. As a final irony, by the time this was released, so had been Davey Boy Smith. Quietly let go due to his receipt of shipments of human growth hormone during a steroid controversy that threatened to spell the end for the entire WWF product. So these really were the last drops that could be squeezed from that moment of popularity. Returning finally to The Simpsons with my thanks. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.3. That's about 13.2 million households, and it was the highest rated show on Fox and rated 16th overall for the week. The production number is 9F09, and the credited writers are Gary Apple and Michael Carrington. Huh? No, me either. So let's meet them, why not? This is, pretty obviously, one of the union-mandated non-staff written episodes. Carrington and Apple had just moved to LA to become sitcom writers when they put in a spec script for The Simpsons, which according to Apple featured Homer doing Wall Street stuff and Bart selling counterfeit school raffle tickets. So nothing to do with this episode. But it was well-liked enough that Sam Simon gave them the plot outline for this episode as a writing assignment, and off they went. Apple has continued as a writer, best known for animated shows, whilst Carrington has occasionally returned to The Simpsons as, would you believe, a voice artist. And we'll hear him later this season as the iconic voice behind Sideshow Rahim. <laughs> the chalkboard gag is coffee is not for kids, getting more and more distorted towards the end, suggesting that it is a lesson that Bart has not learned. And the couch gag can be summed up as family small, couch big. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to watch cops in Springfield. Bad cops, bad cops. 
its opening montage contains... Well, that would be telling, because, Tom, here's your quiz for the episode. What do we see the incompetent police doing in that montage? Now, there are six activities shown in total, and I'm feeling particularly benevolent as a quiz master, it being the season and all that. So your passing mark for this one is a mere four. Oh, let's see if I can remember. While they're watching a Space Mutants movie in a dry, at a drive-thru in the helicopter... Yes, yes. That is a terrible waste of police budget. <laughs> They are shooting a mummy. That's my favourite bit, yeah. At one point, Chief Wigan runs out of bullets and just throws the gun. They're sort of taking stuff out of Jasper's beard. Yes, yes. Okay, that's three. Uh, and they're watching, they're watching TV of police doing some police work. Yes, congratulations. Okay, that's a four. Do you, do you want to risk it for the six? Or? Oh, no, I think I'm done there. Okay, so they're also watching Itchy and Scratchy on TV. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the other one is uh, Wigan failing to talk down a window ledge jumper. Oh, yes. Post-opening, they also fail to stop a hatless cattle rustler after <laughs> battering the wrong door down. It's just another day on the beat for Springfield's finest. Mm -hmm. But why are we watching this in-universe programme? Because Homer is watching it. In bed. With what at first appears to be a single chicken leg, but is later revealed to be a veritable feast including a full turkey, a pizza, spaghetti, fondue, a birthday cake, and a bottle of Diet Cola. Marge expresses concern for his heart. We already know where this is going, thanks to the episode title, but they don't, I guess. Homer, despite massive chest pain, is deaf to her concerns. And this continues at breakfast the next morning, where Bart's being gross and Lisa's cries of anguish nearly kill Homer, who soon forgets he has a thousand knives made of fire stabbing him in the heart when he sees there is bacon available. Marge has prepared him a special surprise breakfast. No, not a whole roast pig that can somehow still talk despite being dead and cooked, as he imagines. But nice, healthy oatmeal. But it's got a bug in it, so, you know, what can you do? Later, whilst in his car and following, seemingly inexplicably, but we'll talk about that later, the birthplace of Edgar Allan Poe being moved on the back of a truck up a hill by Hans Moleman, who he then runs off the road into a fiery wreck... <laughs> Homer is aware of a horrible thumping noise and is relieved when a mechanic reveals it's his heart rather than his transmission. At this point, I'm struck by how much has happened in this episode. We're only about <laughs> a minute into it. Mm. At work, he's spied on by Mr. Burns, who is disappointed with his gluttonous lollygagging and then further disappointed when Smither reveals that they weren't allowed to put a poisoned donut in the selection. As he can't murder him, he does the next best thing and fires him. And as he circuitously does so, we see a box out of Homer's heart. It's not good, and the inevitable happens, shattering the lens of the fictional camera, as he has the first of his many heart attacks in this episode, and indeed as the seasons go on. It does, in fact, kill him, and his spirit leaves his body, but returns when Mr Burns mentions a condolence ham. Upon waking up, said ham is cancelled. Homer is then rushed to hospital, after the ambulance stops for Deer's Crossing, <laughs> And we see Sideshow Mel stuck in a cannon and Chief Wiggum with a bad case of lockjaw. Marge is clipping coupons with her sisters when she gets the news and rushes to his side. We then see episodes from Homer's life as it flashes before his eyes. Having pizza in the maternity ward as a baby, and having a sudden drop of voice destroy his choir career. Worse than that, Hibbert starts messing with Homer's face to prove how weak he is, flying in the face of his hippopotamus oath. Hibbert can't fix his heart, but he can tell him how damaged it is. Marge is happy to pay whatever is required to repair it, but they simply don't have enough to cover the $30,000 bill 
for the heart bypass operation, which rises to 40,000 when the original quote gives them another heart attack. They have $70 in their account, but it's fine. America's healthcare system is second only to Japan, Canada, Sweden, Great Britain, well, all of Europe. So Homer certainly will be fine. Unfortunately, his complete scamming of Merry Widow insurance fails when he has a fourth heart attack, one of which must have happened off screen, whilst signing his policy. So it's off to beg from the major religions. His plea to Reverend Lovejoy was unlikely to get off the ground as he admits he finds his sermons boring, and to a rabbi, possibly Rabbi Krostovsky? The character model looks a little off, but it's easy to make the connection. When he mentions that whilst he has rented Fiddler on the Roof, he has yet to watch it. It's a hiding to nothing, but he at least gets a free doodle. <laughs> As usual, TV has the answer. Hi, everybody! It's an advert for Dr. Nick, who offers to perform any surgery for $129.95. Just call 1-800-DOCTORB. The B is for bargain. This leads Homer to have to tell the kids about his predicament, but luckily nothing can upset them as they're the MTV generation and feel neither highs nor lows. Also worth noting that Homer is a new tie wearing in this scene, and I don't <laughs> believe that tie has been seen before or since. Homer explains, without sugarcoating, but with the use of both finger and hand puppets, that Mr. Legvane is going on a journey to marry Princess Left Ventricle. Bart worries that if it's botched, he won't have a dad. For a while. <laughs> Homer still isn't worried because only bad people die, including Abraham Lincoln, who sold poisoned milk to schoolchildren. <laughs> That'll look out line. In hospital, Homer meets Flanders, who is donating a kidney and a lung because he's that nice. Dr. Nick arrives to say hello, but has to report to the coroner, which he does by jumping out of the window when concerned journalists block the door. Krusty then visits the next day as part of the public service for his glug-glug, vroom-vroom, thump-thump and reveals that he has also had cardiac surgery and that his complexion is no longer makeup, which they go back and forth on, but we'll take that as gospel for now. Whilst Lenny and Carl pretend Homer's been difficult to replace at work, where in actual fact, a brick on a piece of rope has provided <laughs> adequate cover. In a piece of foreshadowing, Lisa reads up on the operation and acquires a cow's heart for reference. As it turns out, Dr. Nick is studying too, watching a video at the local library on how to perform the operation. Though someone has taped over part of it with an episode of People Who Look Like Things. <laughs> I love that. That's my favourite bit in this episode. It looks bleak for Homer, who post-death wants to be stuffed and put on the couch to prevent Marge from remarrying, before delegating his last words to Lisa and Bart, who do a much better job than he would have. As Homer goes under the knife, Moe enforces a whole six seconds of silence in the bar, whilst Apu wonders if his unhealthy treats could be to blame, before selling someone jerky and vodka. <laughs> and luckily, the operating theatre has a viewing gallery, as Dr. Nick predictably fails to pull it off, and Lisa has to tell him how to do the operation, which he eventually gets right, before running afoul of his old friend Mr. McGreg. And that's about it, really. A bit of an abrupt ending, as Homer's heart beats out the theme tune. So, I think, good episode. Not great. Absolutely full of classic moments. Like, I didn't realise MTV Generation was in this, for instance. Yep. Or people who look like things. <laughs> um, and those those were great surprises. I don't feel like it's got that that extra zing that puts it over the edge. But, like, it's, it's, it is good. It definitely is good. Well, I've realised there's lots of things I like about this episode. I think this is the first episode where you've got a sort of complete Dr. Nick... But when he makes his debut, he's there as a kind of a shyster for Lionel Hutz. In that first episode where we see Lionel Hutz, you get this idea that Lionel Hutz is kind of competent and he's an ambulance chaser. 
and Dr. Nick's in, it, in on it and he's covering Bart with bandages. But in this episode, you understand that Dr. Nick is incompetent. But it's got so many classic Dr. Nick lines, it's great. So there's actually no character debuts that I could spot this time. So we're going to go straight to Did You Know? The tiny aorta fairies that Homer presents in finger puppet form are modelled on Akbar and Jeff, two characters from Matt Groening's Life in Hell comics. I think, to be fair, a lot of people do know that one, but, you know, yeah, included for sense of completeness, really. Cops is an incredibly long-running copaganda documentary series. Now at 34 seasons, 1,143 episodes and counting. And in 2011, it became the longest-running show on the Fox network. Uh? Well, that's a record that was broken by The Simpsons when Cops moved to Spike TV and then to the Paramount Network. Now, they actually cancelled it in 2020 after the George Floyd protests. Good. But it continued production. Bad. And has since been picked up by Fox Nation, a very right-wing on-demand service that seems to be a mixture of Fox News and UK skirmish. The incongruous presence of Edgar Allan Poe's house... Sorry, I should pronounce that... Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> leads into a slight telltale heart reference, which of course will arrive more squarely in season six, episode two, Lisa's Rival, which also features a cow's heart. The stuff Ned Flanders was thankful for included Ziggy comics, as well as Sweating to the Oldies volumes one, two and four. Sweating to the Oldies was a series of low impact aerobic videos produced by a non-robotic Richard Simmons in, I think, the 80s. It featured older songs, which at the time would have been 60s and 70s. Why is Ned avoiding Volume 3, though? I have a headcanon explanation for this. Track 2 on that is Louie Louie, famous for the Kingsman's version apparently containing profanity. On another note, is his championing of a workout system clearly aimed at older people an early indication of Flanders' surprisingly advanced age, as officially revealed in Season 10, Episode 10, Viva Ned Flanders? All I know is my gut says maybe. <laughs> The scene where Homer sings in a church as a boy is apparently based on the film Empire of the Sun. I haven't seen that since I was about 12, and even then I missed the start. But a couple of sources said that was the case while I was reviewing it, so I'm just going to go with that one. And finally, when the bad cops bust down Reverend Lovejoy's door, they say they're looking for 742 Evergreen Terrace, which is eventually settled on as the canonical address of The Simpsons. This is more proof that they hadn't actually nailed down their home address yet, a snake jailbird appears to be living at that address at this point. Mm -hmm. It's the only address in Springfield. They all live at 742 Evergreen Terrace. They really have only ever needed one. Yeah. So, Tom, uh, not, not many memeable moments in that, I'm guessing? Well, just the 18, I've got. Usual disclaimer, some people might not count these, some people who think there's more. But anyway, let's get to them. Number one, right off the bat, bad cops, bad cops. Then you've got Snake Jailbird being very aggressive with his close but no donut cops. And then Chief Wigan being equally aggressive, saying, Suspect is hatless, repeat, hatless. Then you've got Homer not wanting to eat his oatmeal by saying, Oh, there's a bug in it. Then you've got a combination of a squeaky voice teen and the sarcastic Raphael. Remember that old Plymouth we just couldn't fix? We're going to sell them to Mr. Lapagus, whatever it was, that Greek name. You're a dull boy, Billy. Oh, great line, great line. <laughs> and you've got Chief Wiggum's big jaw, with Lou being able to fit his whole fist in. 
Um, then when Homer's life flashes before his eyes, we recall baby Homer with a slice of pizza. Uh, then you've got Homer and Dr. Hibbert, remember your hippopotamus oath. You've got the fat analysis with Homer going, look at that flubber fly. Then you've got him trying to beg for money from religious people and saying, no, I know I haven't been the best Christian. I know I haven't been the best Jew. I know I haven't been the best... Ah, forget it. And he got Dr. Nick's advert. And I only noticed on our rewatch that Dr. Nick washes his hands and then dries them on his trousers whilst wearing gloves in that advert. <laughs> and he says, uh, call Dr. The B is for bargain. And then you've got Bart and Lisa saying, we're the MTV generation. We feel neither highs nor lows. What's it like? Eh. I just think that's such a generational thing. And you look at the year and I think, oh, wow. Hasn't, haven't things changed in 20 years? And then I remember, no, that was 30 years ago. 1992 was 30 years ago. <sighs> God, that's depressing. Uh, then you got home in hospital. Bed goes up. Bed goes down. Bed goes up. Bed goes down. As Norwich City fan, it's something I'm very familiar with. <laughs> team goes up. Team goes down. Team goes up. Team goes down. I forgot how many times that's revisited as well. That's a great, great <laughs> example of them setting up a joke and then coming back to it just as many times as they can get comedy out. Yes. And then possibly my favourite sort of TV show in a TV show. And we are back with more people who look like things. <laughs> then just as Homer's about to go under for his operation. What the hell is that? <laughs> Although I have left out. These gloves came free with my toilet brush. <laughs> uh, then you've got Apu. Um, with the guy who comes in and say, can I get some jerky? And he goes, would you like some vodka with that? Oh, sure, what the hell? <laughs> I love the idea of just being upsold some vodka on the fly. <laughs> uh, it's been years since I've had vodka. I think, think watching this episode has, uh, has sold me on the idea of some vodka. Although mm. I, I may pass on the jerky, which traditionally I've not been that keen on. Yeah, a vodka and jerky cocktail. <laughs> Someone will have done that. I saw someone has put out a cookbook based on stuff in The Simpsons. I bet that's in there. Oh, yeah. I meant to get a copy of that and then forgot. Um, <laughs> I did see somebody. There's a, uh, a YouTube account called uh, Binging with Babish, uh, and they've done recipes from The Simpsons, including the crayon and thumbtack sandwich that uh, Ralph Wiggum feeds uh, Chief Wiggum at one stage. Ooh. Um, they, they found a way to make an edible version of it, let's what? put it that way. Uh, let's just say the thumbtacks were omitted. Yeah. Uh, and the crayons may have been more of a concept. but um, Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, just to finish off the meme build moments, uh, one I've used myself when I was sort of jokingly trying to impress people on the UK Simpsons meme page. Seriously, baby, I can prescribe anything I want. <laughs> I was saying that I submit stuff and it gets approved all the time. Seriously, baby, I can post anything I want. <laughs> and then finally, the classic quintessential Dr. Nick line. Why, if it isn't my old friend, Mr. McGreg, with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. I love the way that zooms out and you realise that he's got his arm and, arm and leg in the wrong place. I'm really glad that The Simpsons has moved away in recent years from their pattern of let's get a side character and make a whole episode about them because we would have had the origin of Mr. McGreg by now. Oh, uh, yeah. And frankly, that would have made it less funny. Yeah, but I, if they did that, I would want it to be dark. <laughs> I would want it to be a sort of villain origin story and he then goes out on a crime spree or something. <laughs> 
vowing revenge on Dr. Nick. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, I think that's The Simpsons covered. So now it's time to Slovakia out some history. Oh, no. No. Wrong one. Check it out. Check it out is what check, I was after. Check, 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 check it out. What, what, what's it all about? Okay, the Czech Republic. Or is it Czechia? So let's get that out of the way. You may remember that a few years ago, there was a big fuss in the news about the country wanting to be known internationally as Czechia. Now, recently I was at the QED conference and I had the chance to talk to Claire from the European Council of Skeptical Organisations. Her answer, you can use either. And I just went, I'm, I'm at a science conference, I want black and white answers. The explanation I've read is that Czechia is a noun and Czech is an adjective. It's a bit like how France is officially the French Republic, so Czechia is the Czech Republic. Uh, personally, I don't like Czechia for a couple of reasons. One, it sounds too much like Chechnya, a region of Russia, which we might talk about in the future. And two, I remember the name Czech Republic from things like Karol Poborsky and Patrick Berger in Euro 96. That name means something to me. Classic haircuts as well. Yes. And the Newcastle goalkeeper, what was he called? Oh, Pavel Cernicek. Pavel Cernicek, yes, there you go. But once again, the name of the country is Czechia or the Czech Republic, both are fine. Geography-wise, the Czech Republic is a landlocked country in Central Europe, bordered by Poland to the northeast, Germany to the north and west, Austria to the south and Slovakia to the southeast. The Czech Republic is made up of three main regions, Bohemia, where you'll find the capital Prague, that's in the west, Moravia is in the east, and the Czech part of Silesia, the other being in Poland, is in the northeast. The word Bohemia should get your attention because for centuries the term Bohemian has been used to mean someone who is artistic, defies social norms and associates with small groups. The Puccini opera La Boheme uses the term, even though it's set in Paris, which I've always found a bit weird. It's like, you, you've called it the Bohemian. Set it in Prague. That'll work. <laughs> so there's one of the most famous pop songs ever, Bohemian Rhapsody, and even the Dandy Warhol's Bohemian Like You, which graced every mobile phone advert there ever was about 20 years ago. So I thought what I'd do is look at the history of Bohemia before seeing what happened towards the end of the 80s, up to the so-called Velvet Divorce. I've tried my best to look up all the pronunciations, but if I get any wrong, I apologise. That email telling me off for pronouncing Václav Havel wrong is uh, <laughs> still stinging. Well, how are they going to get hold of you now you're not on Twitter? Exactly. In the early parts of the first millennium, the areas in and around what would become Bohemia were populated by various Germanic and Slavic tribes, According to legend, the first duke and ruler of the Czech people was a man called Croak. He had a daughter called Libouche, and she was a bit of a mystic with a gift for seeing the future. One day, she emerged from a rocky cave next to the Lutava River and pronounced, I see a great city whose glory will touch the stars. According to her vision, a castle and the city of Prague were founded. Outside of mythology... Celtic tribe called the Bowie settled the area. Not, not David Bowie, different people. They lend their name to the region as Bohemia means land of the Bowie people. After them came various Germanic and Slavic tribes. Arguably the first state that Bohemia became a part of was that of Greater Moravia, which rose to prominence under the leadership of Duke Rastislav, who won Moravia's independence from the Frankish king Louis the German. Even though he's French. 
After Rastislav tried to get Louis's son Carloman to overthrow him, Louis invaded Moravia in 864, forcing Rastislav to accept Louis's suzerainty, which is an old-fashioned term meaning vassalage, basically. In 870, Rastislav's son Svatopluk allied himself with the Franks and helped them capture Rastislav, as was the start of the time. You know, good old family feuds back in the Middle Ages. Svatopluk ran his own realm, but was accused of treachery by the Franks. The people of Moravia rose up to defend him, and eventually the Franks were kicked out and the two sides made peace. Svatopluk ruled until his death in 894. His sons ended up fighting each other and Greater Moravia fell apart. The next power to emerge in the region was the Premyslid dynasty. Although their original territory was a tiny region around Prague, they soon expanded and became the dominant force in Bohemia. Before thinning the line of succession was a man by the name of Wenceslas. Aha! Was he any good? Ah, well, he's worth examining in a bit more detail. He was from a time before Christianity was the dominant religion in the region. His mother, Drahemira, was a pagan before converting to Christianity when she married Vratislaus, Wenceslas's father. Vratislaus died when Wenceslas was 13, leaving his grandmother Ludmiva as regent. Drahomira became jealous of Ludmiva, so arranged to have her murdered. Now, we've all had issues with our mothers-in-laws, but really. She was killed by three assassins strangled with her own veil. Straight away, she was considered a Christian martyr and later canonised as a saint. As for Drahomira, she immediately began measures against Christians. When Wenceslas came of age, he had his mother exiled. So it's a fun family dynamic back then. So Wenceslas ruled as a Christian until he himself was murdered by his younger brother Boleslav in 935. Three assassins each stabbed Wenceslas, and as he was falling, Boleslav ran through him with a lance. Like his grandmother, Wenceslas was seen as a martyr, and he too was canonised as a saint. It's like in Christianity, if you're an early Christian, and not only do you die for the cause, but your grandmother dies for the cause as well, that puts you on a really high pedestal. Not surprisingly, the Christmas carol Good King Wenceslas is about him. Perhaps not surprisingly, his brother Boleslav went down in history as Boleslav the Cruel. I mean, he, he murdered Good King Wenceslas, the guy who we sing carols about. <laughs> Who, who heated up the very sod that he stood upon. Anyway, it was roughly at this time that Bohemia kind of became a part of the Holy Roman Empire. And I can't believe I have not talked about the Holy Roman Empire until now. One of my favourite Sugar Packets memes is a great riff on Voltaire. You know the scene where Lisa is standing in front of the cane from Citizen Kane and says, wait a minute, there was no cane in Citizen Kane. Someone made one with three cabinets that said the Holy from the Holy Roman Empire, the Roman from the Holy Roman Empire, and the Empire from the Holy Roman Empire. So it's the opposite of Ron's Hill, then. It doesn't do exactly what it says on the, on yeah, the tin. three times. I've had a go at understanding it, but it's like no empire I've ever known. For example, the French Empire. The emperor was Napoleon Bonaparte, and he made the rules. But with the Holy Roman Empire... There were kingdoms in it, and at some point, the emperor was elected. How does that work? Anyway, the HRE, as the kids call it, started off with Charlemagne, who was king of the Franks. Up until his time, 
there was the original Roman Empire, Julius Caesar and all that. That split in half to give rise to the Byzantine Empire. And after the original Roman Empire fell apart, the Pope in Rome considered the Byzantine Empire its continuation. That was fine until Constantine VI became its ruler in 780, with his mother Irene of Athens ruling as agent. However, when Constantine VI became old enough to rule on his own, Irene said, nope, and she ruled as empress. That was completely unacceptable to Pope Leo III, who did not consider that a woman could lead any Roman Empire. Instead, he looked elsewhere to see who would be worthy of that title. He turned to Charlemagne, who defended the Papal States from the Lombards. The time of Charlemagne is known as the Carolingian period, and during it, Bohemia became mm, kind of a part of it, but not really. The rulers of Bohemia took the title Duke until 1198, but after that, Bohemia was elevated to a kingdom. I know, a kingdom within an empire. Work that one out. Okay, so right now, I want to fast forward to 1415 and talk about a man called Jan Hus, whose name means goose in Czech. Long story short, he was a religious leader who dissented from Catholic orthodoxy. He had this wild idea that during Eucharist, the bread does not physically turn into the body of Christ, but Christ enters into it somehow and it remains bread. What a wild idea. Anyway, there was a schism in the papacy going on at the time, and Hus got caught up in it. He was condemned as a heretic by the church leaders and sentenced to be burned at the stake. As he was led away, he was reported to have said, You may kill this goose, but eagles and falcons will come after me. Which seems like that was too good to be true. <laughs> that, that is a, a badass closing line there. Yeah. I, I, I would be surprised if that was what he actually said. Yeah, yeah. And whoever burned him after he died going, well, that goose is cooked. <laughs> so after he was executed, his followers, known as Hussites, or Hussites, however you want to say it, were enraged. In 1419, they stormed a council meeting at the new town hall and killed a judge, the burgomaster, and several council members. They did it in a particularly famous way. Do you know what that was? Just this once, Tom, I do <laughs> actually know what this is, because I watched a video about it on Puppet History the other day. Nice. It's, um, they got chucked out windows, didn't they? They did. They did. They threw them out the window, hence 1419 was the first defenestration of Prague. Defenestration meaning to throw out of the window. You know, fenetro being French for window, and D as in decapitate, D, D words. It's yet another thing that I only know the definition of through comic books, because <laughs> there is an obscure DC superhero, I suppose we could say, called the Defenestrator. Oh, right. Who carries a window around with him to throw people through. <laughs> nice. Didn't know about that. So, the event was the catalyst for the Hussite Wars, which plagued Bohemia for 20 years. To add to the complexity of the geopolitics of the time, we have to consider the Habsburg monarchy. The family had a Spanish half and an Austrian half, with the Austrian half having its power in the Holy Roman Empire. 1526 saw the Battle of Mohach, an almighty affair that saw a huge army of up to 100,000 troops of the Ottoman Empire take on a coalition of the Holy Roman Empire and its allies. The battle was for neighbouring Hungary. The Ottomans won, and Hungary was partitioned between the victorious Ottomans and Transylvania, with Hungary itself maintaining a small portion of its territory. Louis II, who was king of Hungary, Croatia and Bohemia, was killed. Archduke Ferdinand I took over the throne of Bohemia, 
bringing Bohemia into the Habsburg monarchy. The Protestant population of Bohemia enjoyed considerable religious freedom for the rest of the 1500s, but that changed when Ferdinand of Styria became king of Bohemia in 1617. He was a proponent of a Catholic counter-reformation, and he cancelled the construction of some Protestant churches. The Protestant landlords, well, protested against this. They requested to meet Catholic representatives to find out who was responsible, and they did so at the Bohemian Chancellery on May the 23rd, 1618. And can you guess what they did to the Catholics who they blamed for the cancellation of the church's construction? Oh, once again I know this. They also chucked them out windows. They did. So that was the second defenestration of Prague. However, this one was very different. Despite falling 70 feet, they all survived. The Catholics attributed this to divine intervention, claiming that Mary herself had saved them. The differences in art from the two sides is great. The Catholic images are dramatic and picture saints and angels, while the Protestant explanation features the men falling in a dung heap. <laughs> Needless to say, the attempted murder of Catholic officials by the Protestant lords did not go down very well, and it precipitated the Thirty Years' War, an incredibly destructive conflict that had Bohemian, Danish and Swedish phases, saw millions die and the population of some German states reduced by 50%. After its conclusion with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, Bohemia found itself as part of the Austrian Empire. Still Habsburg, though. Bohemia took decades to recover, and Protestants weren't allowed to worship there until the Austrian Emperor Joseph II issued the Edict of Toleration. In the early 1800s, Bohemia, as part of the Holy Roman Empire, got caught up in the Napoleonic Wars. Following defeat at the Battle of Austerlitz, the empire was dissolved by Napoleon and reorganised into the Confederation of the Rhine, a French puppet state. Bohemia, however, remained a part of the Austrian Empire. There it remained until 1867, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was formed following the famous Compromise, which gave birth to a major European power and a hideous flag. <coughs> As we all know, Gavrilo Princip shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria in 1914, thus triggering World War I. Both the German and Austro-Hungarian empires fell apart afterwards. As for Bohemia, it would become part of a newly independent nation of Czechoslovakia. Its first president was a man by the name of Tomás Masaryk, who had long campaigned for a federated Austria-Hungary, and whose vision was somewhat realised when Czechoslovakia was created following the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which was kind of Austria-Hungary's version of the Treaty of Versailles. Despite World War I being known as the War to End All Wars, the year afterwards Czechoslovakia went to war with Poland over the territory of Silesia. They ended up splitting it between them, and to this day half of Silesia is in Poland, with the other half being in what is now the Czech Republic. It's fair to say that relations between the Czechs and the Slovaks hadn't always been, let's say, rosy, but progressive social policies in the 1920s helped to ease tensions. Of course, the 1930s saw the rise of Nazi Germany, and just in case Kanye West is listening, that was bad. Adolf Hitler tore up the Treaty of Versailles, reoccupied the Rhineland, and declared the creation of the Third Reich. The first being the Holy Roman Empire, and the second being the one proclaimed at Versailles in 1871. After annexing Austria in the Anschluss, Hitler turned his eyes to the German-populated regions of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. Britain, Germany, France and Italy, but not Czechoslovakia, conducted a meeting in Munich, the one that Neville Chamberlain famously returned from, waving a piece of paper in the air and declaring peace for our time. 
Nazi Germany was given the Sudetenland, but of course Hitler didn't stop there. He occupied Czechoslovakia and made the Czech part a German protectorate, while Slovakia became an independent republic run by the far-right Slovak People's Party. And of course World War II was devastating for Czechoslovakia. Hundreds of thousands were killed by the Nazis and the Jewish population of Bohemia and Moravia was pretty much annihilated. Eventually the country would be occupied by the USA and the Soviets at the same time, with General Patton's army entering Pilsen in the southwest and the Soviets occupying Prague. During the war, the Czechoslovakian government was exiled to London. From there, they issued what became known as the Benesh Decrees. Named after the President Edvard Benesh, they were, and still are, a series of laws that prevent ethnic Germans and Hungarians from being Czechoslovak citizens. After World War II, there were huge territorial changes in Europe, but not too many in Czechoslovakia, with the exception of Subcarpathian Ruthenia, which was made part of Ukraine. The government enacted the Benesh Decrees, and some 2 million ethnic Germans and Hungarians were expelled, with their property confiscated. Around 250,000 Germans were allowed to remain, because the decree stated that anti-fascists were allowed to stay. In 1946, there was a general election that covered the whole country, unusual for the post-war Eastern Bloc. The Communists had the largest share of the vote, but that was only 31%. The Communist leader, Clement Gottwald, therefore formed a coalition government. The popularity of the Communists quickly waned, largely because of the Marshall Plan. This was a huge aid package provided by the USA to Europe, named after the Secretary of State George Marshall. While countries like the UK, France and West Germany were the main beneficiaries, it was also off to the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries. Czechoslovakia initially accepted it, but later refused when Gottwald was ordered to reject it by Stalin. Elections were due in May 1948, and everyone thought the communists would lose. Therefore, in late February, the communists took over the government. Here's a brief summary of how it went down. Slowly but surely, the communists had been putting their own people into various government organisations, including the police. Twelve non-communist members of the governing coalition tended their resignations over the matter. Meanwhile, communist militias and protest groups were out in the streets. Gottwald addressed a crowd of 100,000 and threatened a general strike. In response to this, the president Edvard Benesch, of Benesch decrees fame, accepted the resignations of the non-communist ministers and approved new ministers that the Communist Party wanted. After that, everyone in the government was either a communist or a so-called fellow traveller, someone who wasn't officially a communist but was sympathetic to their cause. The only exception was the foreign minister, Jan Masaryk. Two weeks after the coup, Masaryk was found dead outside his third-storey bathroom window, dressed only in his pyjamas. The death of Masaryk remains controversial to this day. It was widely assumed at the time that he was murdered by being thrown out of his window, with some calling it the third defenestration of Prague. The latest investigation into his death concluded in 2021, with the verdict that murder, suicide, or even an accident were all possible. So it's one of those mysteries of history. It could have been anything. It yeah. could even have been a boat. <laughs> Communist power was consolidated in May with a new constitution that made Czechoslovakia a people's democratic state. The Social Democratic Party, who were nominally the opposition, merged with the communists. Also, President Benesh died of natural causes in September, and with him any remnants of the old regime. 
Is that definitely natural causes, or could that also have been murder, suicide, an accident? Uh, no, hurt? no, he was, he was, he was old. He had, he'd had two strokes. He was okay. That was definitely back, back to rights. Then, yeah, right. yeah. The coup had huge repercussions for the new Cold War world. It just so happened that the Western leaders were meeting in London at the time, and the coup proved to be a catalyst for discussions that would eventually lead to the establishment of West Germany as a state and the formation of NATO. Also, any nagging doubts the Americans were having about the Marshall Plan were quickly done away with. In response to Western powers forming NATO, the Soviet Union responded with the creation of the Warsaw Pact. As for Czechoslovakia, the control the Communist Party exerted led to political repression and purges, an example of which being the Slansky trial of 1952, which saw the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Rudolf Slansky, denounced by Chairman Gottwald. After the death of Stalin, de-Stalinisation came pretty slowly under the leadership of Antonin Novotny, with the living victims of the Slansky trial not being released until 1967. The late 60s saw a change in the leadership. Novotny was losing support, so he invited Leonid Big Eyebrows Brezhnev to Prague. Apparently Brezhnev was shocked by how unpopular Novotny was, so he authorised his replacement by Alexander Dubček. Under Dubček, things seemed to improve. People openly criticised Novotny of the press without any repercussions, something that would have been unheard of at the time. Later, Dubček announced Socialism with a Human Face, a series of reforms that included freedom of the press, freedom of speech and freedom of movement. This alarmed Brezhnev. At first, the two sides attempted dialogue. At a meeting on July 29, 1968, the two sides, headed by Brezhnev and Dubček, appeared to reach a compromise. Dubček promised to reaffirm his commitment to the Warsaw Pact, prevent the resurgence of any other political parties, and control the press more effectively. In return, Brezhnev vowed that Soviet troops who were in Czechoslovakia on military manoeuvres would leave. On August the 3rd, the two sides met in Bratislava and signed the Bratislava Declaration. All participants confirmed their commitment to Marxism-Leninism, and Brezhnev declared that the Soviet Union would invade any country within the Warsaw Pact that strayed into a bourgeoisie government. This marked the start of the Brezhnev Doctrine. All these reassurances weren't good enough for Brezhnev, and on the night of the 20th of August 1968, a combined Warsaw Pact force consisting of 200,000 men and 2,000 tanks invaded. The Czechoslovak army was confined to barracks, and the Prague Spring was pretty much crushed overnight. Having said that, resistance from the population meant that the Soviets didn't have full control for another eight months. At least one communist leader spoke out against the invasion. Can you remember who that was? I'm going to say, by uh, a process of elimination, that it's the only one I can think of right now, which is Nikolai Ceausescu. Correct. Of course, the focus of our first proper episode. Don't listen to that, by the way. No, no, no. You can listen to the first proper episode. Don't listen to the pilot. Oh, don't listen to the pilot. Sorry, I'm a bit rusty. We haven't done one of this for a while. <laughs> so, Dubček and the rest of the leadership submitted themselves to the Soviet forces and encouraged people not to take up arms, fearing a bloodbath. Rather than being thrown into prison, Dubček was allowed to return to Prague to resume his duties for a week after the invasion. Under Soviet supervision, all his reforms were gradually undone. Dubček was forced to resign following the Czechoslovak hockey riots of 1969, which saw hundreds of thousands on the streets of Prague following the Czechoslovakia ice hockey team beating the Soviet Union in Stockholm. After that, he was then made ambassador to Turkey. The hope was he'd quietly defect to the West so that he wouldn't be a problem anymore, but that never happened. You might be surprised to know that Dubček was allowed to, well, live. 
He ended up working in the forestry service, although I don't know if he had anything to do with helping to prevent forest fires. He and his family got to live a pretty comfortable life. As for Czechoslovakia, the Communist Party held a monopoly until the momentous year of 1989, back when the world was really interesting. So once again, when Mikhail Gorbachev took power in the Soviet Union, he put in place the policies of Glasnost and Perestroika. In terms of foreign policy, this meant abandoning the Brezhnev Doctrine, allowing Warsaw Pact countries to find their own way to socialism. By November, Poland, Hungary and East Germany were gripped by revolution, and Czechoslovakia was next in line. November 17th was International Students' Day, and it was also the 50th anniversary of the Nazi storming Prague University. To mark the occasion, several thousand students, as well as Václav Havel, demonstrated at the university. At one point they were stopped by the police, who attacked the students and broke up the demonstration. It was rumoured that one of the students had been killed, and the news spread fast. The message from the protesters wasn't spread on TV or radio, because they were controlled by the state, but in theatres. Theatres throughout the country went on strike, with the actors issuing the students' proclamation calling for a general strike from the stages. Events got away from the authorities, and despite the best efforts of the police, the number of demonstrators in Prague had reached an estimated 800,000 by November 25th. One by one, government organisations joined the opposition, and on November 28th, the Federal Assembly removed the provision for the Communist Party running the country, essentially ending the dictatorship. A few things came to symbolise the revolution. One of them was protesters holding flowers in front of riot police, and another was the jingling of keys, done to symbolise the unlocking of the country. On December 29th, 1989, Havel became president. A new government was elected in June next year. Soviet troops left, and the country moved towards a market economy. After that, discussion started over the future of the nation. And this is where the Velvet Divorce comes in. I'm saying because, well, it's really not that interesting. Sorry. Václav Klaus was elected Prime Minister of the Czech part of Czechoslovakia in 1991. His Slovak counterpart was a man named Vladimir Mechiar. Following the federal election in June 1992, Klaus and Mechiar entered negotiations to form a coalition. They weren't able to reach a deal, so the idea of the country splitting was put forward. After brief discussions, that's what was agreed. The only person in a position of leadership who disapproved was Harvell himself, who resigned rather than oversee the divorce. The Federal Assembly passed Constitution Act 541 on November 13th, which settled the issues of borders and property ownership. The Czech Republic approved its new constitution on December 16th, the day before Homer's Triple Bypass first aired, and on December 31st, 1992, the two countries officially became independent and Czechoslovakia ceased to exist. One of the reasons the Velvet Divorce isn't that interesting is that it's an issue that was met with a lot of apathy at the time. There was no passion. It didn't have many ramifications for the international order, and the people of Czechoslovakia themselves were not that bothered. There weren't any protests on either side, and in the post-Cold War world, there really weren't any advantages or disadvantages either way. It's not like, say, the Brexit referendum in the UK in 2016. Back then, you had Remainers, who were passionately right, and Leavers, who were passionately wrong, and the fallout continues to this day. But for the Czechs and Slovaks, they seemed to get on fine. There was no violence, no border issues, nothing like that. And these days, both countries are not only in the European Union, but in the Schengen area too, so their borders are open to each other. It's all just a bit... Yeah. So, is Czechoslovakia, or indeed either of its children, in The Simpsons? 
Yes, yes it is. In reference form, at least. One of which we've already seen. In Season 3, Episode 10, Flaming Moes, Homer invents the Flaming Homer while sitting through a slideshow of Patty and Selma's trips abroad, including a photo of a Czechoslovakian power outlet that their leg razor won't fit. Oh, that's right, yes. In Season 18, Episode 4, Treehouse of Horror 17, obviously non-canon, Bart befriends a golem who was sculpted in Prague. And most recently, in fact very recently indeed, in season 33, episode 22, or 21 depending on who you ask, because Disney Plus now seems to be combining any two-parters, which throws the numbering system completely out, Poor House Rock, Homer takes Bart to a check-cashing place, which appears to be in the check-cashing district, as there's a classic set of humorous business signs, including, of course, the Czech Republic, <laughs> but with Czech spelled C-H-E-C-K in a delicious pun. Yeah. Americans can't spell check right. C H E C K is 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 just is just to like tick. Whereas C H E Q U E is a thing that you pay with. When will they learn? Yeah. And on that American baiting bombshell. <laughs> Don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, but don't. Instead, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we'll be back at some stage. Could be in the middle of the night, it could be when you least <laughs> expect it. Or whatever's good for you, I don't care. Indeed. Merry Christmas 2022, everybody. And Merry Christmas 1992. <laughs> Bye.